here we go. Today, we continue our journey through 1983. The talents, the hits, the songs, the shows. Marvel's Canadian super team takes flight, breaking records in the process. The English invasion of bands hits the U.S. Duran Duran, Madness, Culture Club, Thomas Dolby, the Human League. But none of them can unseat the megastars who grip the top of the charts. Five acts charted number one in 1983. Five acts with number one albums. One for 22 weeks. Another for 17. What a crazy, great year for entertainment. And we dive into all of it on an all-new episode of Observations. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. My career has been spent making comic books. And on this podcast, we talk about comic books and the amazing worlds that they've spawned and the realms that, that they now occupy, the realm of filmmaking, movies, streaming. The incredible amount of merchandise. I am not a giant video game head, but video games, comic book superheroes dominate them in a way that they've never, ever before. I mean, we've got superhero characters dropping into other established franchises like, like Mortal Kombat. Superheroes have never been a bigger deal. Comic books have never been a bigger deal. And having produced them, written them, drawn them, created them for 37 years, I decided to talk about it on this show. And we have such a great episode for you today. It is part two of our Decades series, 1983. We barely dipped our toe in the waters for the first part. This, this one, we are going for the, the full swim, the deep dive. It is going to be such a good time because as I look at all the things that we need to talk about today, I don't, I don't know how we're going to get it all in. I mean, these, these decades series generally get split into two episodes. And, and, and now I'm thinking, man, this isn't, this isn't big enough, but we're, we're going to tackle it. We're going to tackle it together and we are going to have a blast because 1983 was such a, a, a great time and informative time. Uh, and, and, and again, as with so many of these years that we dissect together, it was a time that really defined so much of what would come in the first part of, of, of 1983. And, and the decade series, we have different years that we pull out of each decades and we parse them for all manner of different data, movies, films, comics, uh, music. And, and, and today we're going to, we're going to continue. We're going to get into the music. We're going to get into the TV and we're going to definitely, uh, share a little more about some of the really important comic books that came out. But I'm going to tell you right now, 1983, this year was chosen. The reason, uh, that, that I, that I went down this path, this particular date, was recently, as I'm recording this, it was just about a week ago, a giant, you know, Hollywood trade, big, big name in the, in the Hollywood business, Variety, Daily Variety, which I've been following for four decades, uh, did an article coming out of the Cannes Film Festival that said, you know, where's all the younger stars? And this is kind of a theme that they do each and every year for the last decade. And it basically said a lot of today's actors and, 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 and the stars, quote unquote, that exist in, in the ecosystem of Hollywood are tied to giant IP. And, and, and you guys know if you've listened to this show, how much I hate that. Um, I mean, IP, it sounds like IP, like I'm peeing. But intellectual property is, uh, nobody wants to take the word to say intellectual property. And so they identify everything 
as IP. And if you've been on a Zoom call with an executive or um, a big uh, production uh, you, know, you know, company or executive at one of the studios, they call these IP, IP, IP. Well, Chris Evans, they say, is tied closely to his, his biggest role is Captain America. Chris Hemsworth's biggest role is Thor. Okay. And, 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 and Tom Holland's biggest role is Spider-Man. Now, I know he, he's, he's a great actor. These are all really talented guys. No one is disputing that. But again, what is the ecosystem of, of Hollywood? They want to make stars. The agents want to make these stars the most irresistible commodities because they want to trade off of them and they want to commission off them. Now, The Rock became bigger than anything he played. He became The Rock. And, and, and the thing about The Rock is he's very distinct looking in that he's always rocking that shiny dome and those incredible muscles. He, he, he's most like the Schwarzenegger of the 80s. It's, it's clearly who he, who he patterned himself on. And now maybe even there's other articles that were like, well, maybe The Rock needs to be something else other than The Rock because we're so rocked out. Famously returning to uh, uh, his, his Fast and the Furious franchise after saying he would never go back, I think is a sign that he realizes maybe there's a gear shift. But, but for all these other actors that they're talking about, they're, they're really um, isolating the fact that even somebody as great as Timothy Chalamet, and I am a gigantic Timothy Chalamet fan, our family, we, we love Timothy Chalamet, he's ridiculously talented, but they say his two biggest roles now are tied to Dune and the upcoming Willy Wonka. Now, again, the guy just shows up and, and rocks whatever role uh, he's in. He's in, incredibly talented. And, uh, and, 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 you know, obviously, we, we love him for it. And there's a reason that they pursued him for those, for those specific uh, roles. But, but having read that article and, and, and given that the data that they were putting out there, like, you know, today's big name talent is, is tied to IP. And, and, and nobody really, Hemsworth doesn't have something of his own and Holland doesn't have something uniquely of his own. And it got me to thinking of this year, 1983, where Tom Cruise took off and became Tom Cruise. But Tom Cruise uh, did, did not just settle in on being e- even the cocky flyboy that he would become three years later. I mean, he's the, the cocky kind of uh, party boy schemer, you know, who falls in love with the call girl. Uh, in Risky Business, which put him on the map in 1983. I mean, his face is on the poster. Again, these guys went from being actors on a call sheet, show up, be part of an ensemble like you were in on Outsiders uh, or, or in Eddie Murphy like you were in Saturday Night Live, and they became breakout stars. They were on the posters. They were the big deal. They were the reason that the movies you know, played and played and played. Risky Business, like I said, that scene where he you know, comes into Bob Seger, you know, sings, uh, uh, you know, launched Tom Cruise on a rocket ship that he never came back from. He's still out there passing all the different planets in the cosmos. He's not just Ethan Hunt. And, I, and I've, I've talked about that incredible uh, period uh, where, 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 where he was doing Magnolia, where he was doing Vanilla Sky, where, where he was uh, just, just pushing the envelope. Jerry Maguire is, exists because Tom Cruise made us love his very unique depiction of, of Jerry Maguire. Um, I think Eyes Wide Shut is fantastic and just one of the most spectacular movies in his portfolio. It's a polarizing movie, but man, am I glad he made it. I'm, I'm so glad that he disappeared for that, that many years and went deep into the bunker 
with Stanley Kubrick to, to turn out what would be Kubrick's last film. So, you know, collateral in the early 2000s, like he really becomes this hitman, ruthless hitman. He's not Ethan Hunt, you know? So, so again, he, he broadens the, the, the closest thing to the Tom Cruise model in the last two decades. And literally, I mean, we are talking close to 30 years is Leonardo DiCaprio who liked Tom Cruise, didn't want to get pigeonholed. And from Titanic, didn't just, you know, go and make a bunch of action movies. He made The Departed. He made, uh, <laughs> um, he, he, I mean, <laughs> he is uh, just absolutely crazy and, 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 and completely bonkers. An absolute, complete madman in, in Django. Okay, Django Unchained is, the, is, is I, I got to get it right, Django. Unchained, okay? Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the great Gatsby. He's even more bonkers in Wolf of Wall Street, okay? Even more bonkers. But like Django, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a supporting, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a leading role in a villain, villainous uh, depiction. Uh, again, DiCaprio, but, but he blew up. Again, in, 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 we're four years shy of, of 30 years of Titanic, okay? So, so, DiCaprio is one of the last. So I look back to 1983. That that entire the entire impetus for doing 1983 was that article, and looking at Eddie Murphy, who then breaks out of Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, Coming to America, all the stuff I've covered. But you know what? That it was harder, I believe, to be a movie star at that point in time. It was harder. These movies, the only place they played, the only place you were exposed to somebody who like Matthew Broderick is breaking out in war games is because you went to the theater. Why did Trading Places play for 17 weeks in the top 10? 17 weeks in the top 10. Hey, it, it eventually fell out of the top 10 and then did a whole bunch of time there. But because movies were only viewed in, in, in theaters, you could only see when people went back to Trading Places and saw it and put it in the top 10 for 17 weeks because where else were you going to see it? When it left, you had to wait for it to go to its traditional cycle back then, which eventually go on a cable network in six months, a year. And then we started to get the the home video cycle, the the blockbusters and 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 the dedicated like okay this will be out on home video in six months whatever. But back then it was theatrical, then cable, and then we're just starting to explore the the rented space. The the in, in a couple of years later, I just remember my senior year suddenly, you know, going to rent movies and play them. But at this time in 1983, you had to go see these movies in the theater. That's the only place you could exist alongside these movies. You didn't get to go out. And, 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 and stream them on any device. You didn't get them in six weeks, in four weeks. You certainly weren't watching them on your phone because there were no digital phones. There was no internet apparatus. So becoming, breaking out as Michael Keaton did, Tom Cruise, Eddie Murphy, uh, Matthew Broderick in, in 1983, and then Harrison Ford saying goodbye to Han Solo, us saying goodbye to Han Solo, but him not saying goodbye to us and saying, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to continue to um, redefine the modern Hollywood leading man and, and, and in a way that that like guys like Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise, they're the only guys who are going to run alongside me in this space for this period of time. Because whether it's Witness or Frantic or, or Presumed Innocent, you know, or Air, Air Force One or the Jack Ryan films, Harrison Ford just continued to just be a movie star, to be a guy who, who, who picked material that you wanted to see and that you showed up for. So that is, that was the impetus for 1983. Then Seeing that 1983 from a Marvel comic book standpoint gave us this gigantic, 
new character named Beta Ray Bill that shifted everything that put Thor at the top of the charts. And you're going to see, we're going to go into the comic book charts here in just a second, because the biggest thing, the single biggest thing, X-Men held serve, Thor blew up with Walt Simonson coming on, introducing Beta Ray Bill, really depicting Thor in the best way that he's ever been depicted, building on what Kirby did. I think Kirby's mega year run on Thor was the foundation that Walt was able to build on in the same way that the, the two years of, of X-Men by Dave Cockrum was something, and, and John Byrne has talked about this, he was so enamored with what Dave Cockrum was doing that he jumped on and then just never looked back and built this incredible legacy of the uncanny X-Men that we continue to just completely uh, just be enamored with. That's what Walt did with Thor. Never looked back. But that is not the biggest story of 1983. And it goes back to uh, Mr. John Byrne. It's connected to the X-Men, but it is unique. It is completely unique. Uh, the biggest story for Marvel of 1983 was the most unexpected launch for years and years because of their popularity in appearing uh, in, the, in the pages of the X-Men. A, a group called Alpha Flight, a group called Alpha Flight would be a group that people just fandom just clamored for. They loved, they absolutely loved, they adored the depiction of these characters uh, when they faced off, when they faced off against the X-Men. And I'm trying to just, I, I, want, I want most of what I'm about to say to be said in, in the, the, the words of the guy who created Alpha Flight. I want him to tell you, but I can tell you being one of those guys in spring of 1979, who, again, that's a year we just did, and on the final leg of the X-Men's intergalactic, international journey home, they encountered Alpha Flight, a build-out of a, of, 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 a team, of, of a team around a single member that we had met in, in I, believe, I believe, X-Men 108, which, which introduced this Canadian super weapon, Weapon Alpha. His name was, in that issue, Vindicator. Now, again... John Byrne didn't like that name. He didn't like that his name, his character was named Vindicator. And you're going to um, understand why uh, that, that they, they, they couldn't name him because uh, at the time, Guardians of the Galaxy was still being published by Marvel and they did not want to give him the name that John had given him, which was Guardian. And so uh, he claims Chris Claremont came up with the moniker of Vindicator that would then uh, build him out and uh, excuse me, it was X-Men 109, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quickly course correcting, but X-Men 109, and this, this is one, like, I've talked to other comic book fans who I thought uh, this was a book I absolutely needed. So, so truth be told, X-Men 109 did not make it to a, one of my, my mini outlets during that period. I had now moved, and, and, and the place that I was getting comic books was the Foodland Market the U totem and, and a seven 11 nearby. And there's a drugstore, and none of them picked up. Now X-Men was still doing coming out bi-monthly, but none of them picked up, uh, this issue of X-Men. But that did not mean that, uh, that my buddy who lived three doors down did not have it in his possession. And when he showed me Mike, little Mike, he was younger than me. His mom owned a gas station like in Cerritos and they had comic books there. And he's like, Oh my, 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 
My grandma always pulls these for me. And I mean, you want to talk about coveting. You want to talk about just absolutely, I have to have this. That, that woman in Napoleon Dynamite who needs that, that, that boat stuffed in a bottle. That woman who says, I, I want that. I want that. Well, I wanted that. I needed to have X-Men 109. Did I bargain and give him? Did I give him? comic books like give him for him to possess for the rest of time for a one night sleepover with x-men 109 i did i absolutely did you know i was gonna say i did you know i was i mean so and and this one this one really sparked like like i didn't want to give it back but i had to give it back that was that was those, those were the terms before he was vindicator he was weapon alpha and he takes on the entire team i've talked about this before when you introduce a character and and i had seen this before and when you introduce a character and they can whoop your whole team, that character will then be seen with great esteem and favor by the fan base. And what Vindicator, Weapon Alpha, later to be Guardian, does here in this issue is he comes to take Wolverine back to Department H to, 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 to build on the themes that they build out when, when he was first introduced in Hulk and in Giant Size X-Men Annual when Professor Xavier goes to Department H to say, hey, I need this, this young mutant you have to help rescue my, mute, my, 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 my team that's, that's, uh, that's on this island called Krakoa. This, this builds on these themes. <clears throat> and you have this guy, James Hudson, who has a history with Wolverine, and he's coming to take him back, and he goes toe-to-toe with Colossus, Banshee, Storm, and Wolverine, but is eventually be overwhelmed by, by the fact that they're going to combine their might against him because he can take them out each one by one. He attacks them while they're just having a day by the lake. He explodes uh, up, up from the lake to take Wolverine home. Department H's position nearby. He's their property. Wolverine is their property. They want him back. So what happens two years later in, in X-Men 122 is that, uh, I'm sorry, X-Men 121, is that we now meet an entire team that is assembled behind Weapon Alpha, now Vindicator. And we meet North Star, Aurora, Sasquatch, Snowbird. Okay, and Shaman. And it's this incredible reveal when they are standing there, you know, full splash page. 1979, X-Men, 121, the cover, Dave Cockrum, Cyclops is blasting, Vindicator, Colossus is toppling, Sasquatch, you know, Storm is blasting, Snowbird. This two-parter where the, the first one's just building up the tension. You know that Vindicator has been uh, alerted that the X-Men have made their way to Canada. Previous issues, they were in Japan. Previous issues, they were in uh, the Savage Land, the Antarctic. They're just trying to make, it way, they're make, make their way home to tell Professor Xavier they're alive. And they keep meeting all these obstacles. They meet Alpha Flight. Alpha Flight says, now we can take you back and you can't stop us. And the action and the conflict is, is, is spectacular. As you can imagine. So that is 1979. Alpha Flight then becomes the buzz of every. When are we going to see Alpha Flight again? When are we going to see Alpha Flight again? We have to see Alpha Flight again. I have to have Alpha Flight in my life. These characters were so cool. They were so immediately engaging. Their names Aurora, North Star, Sasquatch, Shaman, Snowbird. Um, but I have friends who like, like Marat Michaels. I know Marat uh, occasionally listens to the show. Marat, you have told me that X-Men 109, you loved it. Vindicator, Guardian, Weapon Alpha just became your um, immediate favorite character and you couldn't believe how cool he looked. Visuals, you know, five-star visuals, visuals, we connect with visuals. He, Marat just said, he looks so cool. 
loved his costume, loved that red and white, kind of this, this homage to the Canadian flag, loved his name, loved his powers, had to see him again. Well, in 1983, he gets his own book alongside the entire Alpha Flight, the entire Alpha Flight group. It's a double-sized issue. Alpha Flight number one arrives in the spring of 1983 for Marvel Comics. John Byrne has gone on the record several times as saying he didn't want to do it. The reason it took so long is he kept turning down the powers that be. Presumably, you know, the Jim Shooters of the world, the editor-in-chief who's like, I could use this book. You're able to do two books a month. You're doing Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four has climbed the charts. It's our top five seller now. Um, You know, John took it from 10, 11, 12, up to anywhere from three, four, five. The problem with Fantastic Four at the time is it could not get over the X-Men or Daredevil. You had the X-Men in full bore. I mean, a machine he really helped breathe all that heat and fire into. And then Daredevil by Frank Miller, as we've covered so many times, was tearing up the charts for three years. It was the number one thing of its time. Think of whatever the hottest thing was in your lifetime on television. Maybe it was Seinfeld. Maybe it was Friends. Maybe it was MASH going way back. Maybe it was Hill Street Blues, you know, L.A. Law, whatever topped the charts. This X-Men and Daredevil were were those two, one and two, back and forth trading. But John put Fantastic Four all the way up there. So they wanted to do Alpha Flight. Well, he comes out with Alpha Flight. Alpha Flight number one arrives uh, in the spring of 1983. And did you know, because I don't think this is a well-known fact. I really, I, I, when I talk to people, they're genuinely surprised about this. But everyone is on record, uh, you know, uh, on this. And the bottom line is uh, it carries, you know, again, we cannot get so many people d- get hung up on the... Uh, the, the date that is on the cover. The cover date is not the shipping date. It says August. Uh, it, it says August 1983. In fact, it came out May 17th, 1983. Again, spring 1983. And it's got them all running past. The great the cover of Alpha Flight number one is the Alpha Flight members are running past Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four. And it says one side heroes. This is a job that only Alpha Flight can handle. First dynamic double-sized issue. It was a double-sized issue. It was exciting. Again, back in the day, I'm not sure I knew it was going to be double-sized. I didn't know that when I bought it that I was going to be um, consuming a $1.25 comic book that was a double-sized issue. Now, here's here's the rub. Alpha Flight was also immediately disappointing to everyone because of the approach, not because of the art. John Byrne was at the, you know, he wasn't X-Men John Byrne. He wasn't like, for me, the best Sean Byrne that ever was, was like 1979, 1981, Captain America, the Avengers, X-Men. This guy was in his absolute, um, just full on prime. But when he gets to Alpha Flight, it's, it's, it's his approach. We want to see them as a team. We fell in love with them as a team. They were thr- you know, thumping on, thumping on the X-Men. That's what we wanted. They had made other guest appearances, Marvel 2 and 1. They'd appeared, some of the characters had appeared in Hulk. The Alpha Flight characters were so in demand. Does this sound familiar? A character that burst on the scene, so in demand, he starts, you know, appearing in other comics to satisfy the fans' curiosity and other creators' desire to play with those characters. Well, he gives us Alpha Flight number one, a book he's going to write and draw simultaneously along with Fantastic Four, and he pulls it off. He can do this. John Byrne is fully capable and pulls this off. And the art is not the issue. It's that the team operates alone. They are isolated. He he does this two-parter with Aurora Northstar. He does a single issue of Puck. He does a two-parter with Sasquatch. A great two-parter, by the way. Um, 
This opening scene, they battle a mountain, tundra. They battle a giant monster. It's, it's got some cool stuff in it. Now, I am intimately uh, involved with many of these issues because in 1993, with my Image Comics earnings, John Byrne's agent sells me the entirety of Alpha Flight number one. I, I owned it for over a decade. Uh, Alpha Flight number four, five, like seven. I had three complete issues. It was either four or five. It was the full puck issue. And I studied them and I looked at them and I, I looked at his brushwork and his, and his technical pen work. There was no more quill. He was mixing uh, up his tools. I bought them just because I wanted to have them because they seemed like a good time. But I was instantly back to being 15 years old and being dissatisfied with the content. Alpha Flight number one, they don't do a lot. There's a lot of buildup. There's some cool pages with the backstory. But then they eventually unite to take down a giant, you know, elemental creature called Tundra which is really not what I was looking forward to, but it's what happened. I owned these issues. I, I eventually parted with these in 2000. My love of these books was not enough for me to keep them. So I sold Alpha Flight. I, I sold all my single issues, but for years I had them because that's what, the, well, that's what was available to me. That's what was out there. And they were, sing, you know, the Puck, the entire Puck solo issue, an, an entire Aurora solo issue but i wanted to see them as, as a team now john Byrne purposely set them apart he purposely did not want to bring them together he only brought them together when he turned the book on its ear and in many fans the, it, the redemption was at hand with with alpha flight 12 13 11 this entire or omega flight was assembled and i'm not going to ruin it but it was a legit shock to the system the team was finally together again and there was a giant occurrence a giant shift that would change the book. And it was really engaging. But for the first year, he kept them apart. He did not unite them. He wanted to tell solo stories. And it was a, an approach that, that, he, uh, that he deliberately intended to, to, to execute. And he did. And I'm going to give it to you in his words. What's better than Rob Liefeld fanboy r- reminiscing on Alpha Flight is, is Rob Liefeld reading to you uh, John Byrne's words. And here's the deal. I'm going to also read you an excerpt from his Next Men. He did a book called The Next Men, N-E-X-T, for Dark Horse. And he writes a foreword in that in 2009. And I'm going to share that uh, one sentence that he writes in there about Alpha Flight to, again, go back uh, because it's on record that this Alpha Flight number one that I was like, wait, they're fighting a mountain? And then every issue after, they're not really together. He introduced a new character in it called Marina. Marina, however you're going to uh, discuss it, and it united some of the car- some of the some of the cast. It had Prince Namor. It had you know, uh, uh, it, it had Puck, but it wasn't really again. It wasn't a team endeavor, and I think he wanted to be really offbeat. Here's in John Byrne's own words. This is something that he spoke of in 1998. Okay, <clears throat> matter of fact, this is April of 1998. He said, and I and I quote. Uh, John Byrne, Alpha Flight was never meant to be anything more than just a bunch of superheroes who could survive a fight with the X-Men in X-Men 121. They had no real depth. I had resisted suggestions that they get their own book for years. Then finally, Marvel, realizing they could get someone else to do Alpha Flight if I didn't, uh, approached me. I relented. I agreed. Alpha Flight, number one, was a huge success. It was the biggest selling comic book of its day, and I'm going to add of its era, selling 500,000 copies, a half a million copies at $1.25 a pop. You don't think 1983 Marvel 
fans just exploded. I'm also going to give you a 1983 comic book sales chart that even goes further into uh, just, just how incredibly successful Alpha Flight was. And, and again, this is a day where now royalties are being handed out. So you're going to get a percentage of those sales. John Byrne was getting a cut of that, just in the same way that I was getting a cut of the New Mutants and X-Force, and Jim was getting a cut of X-Men. But it's bigger when you create the characters. You get a bigger incentive back in the day. There, there was a bigger incentive that was um, added to you running through this entire 80s period. Uh, again, up, up until the time that I'm doing New Mutants, just, just as, as, a, as an aside. Now, once I'm gone and leave marvel to do image in 1991 i'm not sure but i I think that the the agreements did in fact change but john burns sold half a million copies if you didn't know that you know that now half a million copies the number one selling comic for marvel it it didn't have a whole lot of time to breathe now it was their number one selling launch but but would, would what would go on to beat it routinely was secret wars a year later which how do you compete against the entire marvel universe uniting you know, the X-Men, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, new costume for Spider-Man, new villains. I mean, um, incredible. But this is, in, this is no, n- nothing less than spectacular that these group of characters, now here's the deal, they're from Canada. John Burns from Canada. You're like, Rob, when are you going to mention the Canada connection? He is from Canada. He pivots towards Wolverine, his favorite character in the book, in X-Men, partially why it took off the way it did, because he wanted to favor the Canadian character. He then creates an entire group of Canadians. He, 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 you know, introduces in his second issue of X-Men, this, this, uh, friend of Wolverine that is there to hunt down and, and procure, you know, Logan and bring him back. And then in two years later, he gives us the entire Alpha Flight team. Then having realized, like he said, Marvel owns Alpha Flight. When you sell a character to Marvel, you go in knowing this is the terms of the deal. I'm going to get X percent. I'm going to get X amount to, to make it a Marvel character because you want to make that character a Marvel character. There's no fooling you. That the, 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 the rules are obvious going in. And and again, when a guy like a, <clears throat> a Todd McFarlane calls me up, you know, this is my, in, in, in 1990, he goes, oh, but, but, but you're making us look bad. Everyone's like, why aren't you giving new characters, characters, like Liefeld, like, like what are you doing? Why, why are you giving all these characters? To which I've always said, Todd, you have Spider-Man. I have a bunch of gangly kids in the New Mutants, and this book is is is, is sliding down the pole, and, and it's greased with butter, and I have to stabilize it. And the reason I did what I did, knowingly, with Cable, with Deadpool, with all these characters, Domino Shatterstar, was I was doing the same thing John Byrne was doing. I was just trying to make better stories, enhance the characters that were already in the book. Um, and then you, you the fans, are always the one. We the fans, because I'm the fan here with Alpha Flight. We propped that up. We took that straight to the moon. Just in the same way that you, we can put a character in a book, but if you don't re- re- respond, you don't react, you don't elevate it, then we have nothing. John Byrne introduced Alpha Flight. He followed his muse. He said, well, I'm Canadian. What's better than this one badass Canadian character, a badass Canadian character hunting that badass Canadian character? Oh, look, X-Men 109 is, is, is a fanboy's dream. Everybody loves this. Well, in a couple of years, when we get the opportunity, we're going to do a two-part Alpha Flight story. They're going to be in Canada. I'm going to create all these Canadian characters. The great thing about Alpha Flight is each and every one of the you know d- d- issues uh, takes you to Quebec. It takes you to you know Ottawa. It, it takes you to Vancouver. He really gave a tour in a big, t- in a big giant way of Alpha Flight, of, of, of Canada through, through 
his work on 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 Alpha Flight. Again, the Canadian boy does good and and does does his uh, does his proud country. Uh, he does them up big time, you know. Before Ryan Reynolds was getting accolades from being for being this ridiculously su- successful Canadian comic books had its own ridiculously successful Canadian. There's other ca- Canadian comic book characters of that I am aware. None were on par with what John Byrne was doing and with what John Byrne delivered. So half a million copies of Alpha Flight Number One. If you don't think they flip their lids, but then so I'm going to continue. John says, so So right here he said they were never inc- intended to be anything other than a team of Canadians fighting the X-Men as they were in that storyline. Um, <clears throat> John, John Byrne expands, several members of Alpha Flight date back to my fan days. Guardian is chief among them, being created when I was in my early tw- 20s as the figurehead of a whole line of Canadian comics that I was hoping to produce. Snowbird, in a very different form, was around uh, at the same time. Shaman... I originally called him Chinhook. He had only weather-controlling powers. Came next. There was a character called Phoenix, and there was no chance, clearly, that that character was ever going to make it into Alpha Flight at Marvel. When I was assigned the gig penciling Uncanny X-Men, Chris Claremont mentioned that Dave Cockrum had an idea that the Canadian government would not be too thrilled to see their multi-million dollar investment, Wolverine, head south as they had with so many other Canadian resources. Surely he suggested they would send someone to get him back. It sounded like a great idea to me. I had the characters to pull this off. We just started with just one, though, the leader of the group, but Marvel was publishing Guardians of the Galaxy at the time, and the powers that be nixed the name Guardian. So, uh, <laughs> John's backup name is Canadian Shield. He says, my backup name was the Canadian Shield, and I think we're all very happy that the Canadian Shield was not the name. Uh, it, it, it was equally problematic for Marvel, that name, Canadian Shield. He said, uh, Chris Claremont jokingly called him Major Maple Leaf. And then Chris tacked on the Vindicator, which absolutely did not work for me. This is in Chris Claremont's words. Um, what does Canada need to vindicate? He asks. I was pushing for the restoration of Guardian and eventually I succeeded. Um, before that happened, we had our sequel with a group of Canadians coming down to reclaim Wolverine. Uh, we, 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 Dropped in Shaman, redesigned Snowbird, came up with North Star and Aurora. Sasquatch was there to balance Colossus, and off we went. In the process, I came up with real significant names and backstories for each of them. Um, in my mind, Alpha Flight had only existed in that moment to be assembled to battle the X-Men. Uh, when they asked for an Alpha Flight series, I resisted. And in in the fan writings of this uh reflective of of alpha flight you don't have to look far you just go google and people will say you know i mean i hate okay you guys know wikipedia um and, and man if you saw this 60 minutes um story on wikipedia it would uh you, you'd flip out but look they, they they curate and edit per their their agenda their desires so i hate recommending wikipedia even though it is a quick quick resource for so many of us uh but even uh in a, a casual glance at the Alpha Flight, uh, w- Wikipedia will 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 mention to you uh, <clears throat> that uh, says here, Burn Marvel convinced Burn to feature them in their own series as a way to capitalize on Burn's soaring popularity. 
He never found Alpha Flight to have compelling stories um, and, and significant backgrounds and left the title. And it talks about how that fans uh, were frustrated because the team was never brought together. You can read many, many different accounts. Don't trust me. Go back and get the receipts. People were, um, and, and I, I was one of them. I was one of them. I didn't stop buying Alpha Flight. I bought it regularly, routinely. But I wanted to see them as a team. I wanted to see them together. And, and it was something that we were not offered really until uh, the end of year one in the, in the most spectacular fashion. And then I think maybe bending to fan desire and editorial guidance, they were there together more. But of course, um, what, what I'm also skipping is his own lack of interest in this led to him uh, wanting off the book. And he left after 28 issues, just after it rounds the bend on the two-year mark. He wants off and he gets on the Hulk instead. And the Hulk is his last big hurrah before he goes and does Superman. But he said, I just didn't really have a whole lot to say with this team. And I felt my own frustration. He said, John talked openly in interviews that he felt fans' frustration because it was his own frustration because he just didn't have a whole lot to say with those characters. When I read it, it made me sad. But in, in all honesty, you know, at least, at least he was being honest with, with his approach to his own characters and knew that maybe he had said all he needed to say, all he wanted to say, and he pivoted and he, and he went off the book and went away. The, the very specific line uh, that approaches this uh, in, in, the, in this, again, casual glance at, at the Wikipedia said, uh, during the time John Byrne uh, was producing Alpha Flight, uh, he seldom brought the members together. Uh, this approach drew criticism from the fans. So it's not that it wasn't well done, and I, I would draw anything that John Byrne, I would draw. I would purchase anything John Byrne drew as did most of fandom at the time, when they said that it was, you know, they were keen to capitalize on his popularity. They, they weren't kidding. They weren't kidding. They wanted John to absolutely give them an Alpha Flight book. He did. It broke records. And so that's the other thing. I, I said I was going to read to you from this uh, Next Men. Next Men trade paperback collection that IDW printed in uh, 2009. And it speaks directly. It speaks directly to what he's saying here. He says uh, in his foreword, it's like seven paragraphs in. He said, uh, talking about Next Men, he's talking about his success on Next Men. And he says, <clears throat> even with the grumbling that my first issue of Next Men was going to, was going to top 200,000 units, which was a significant number at the time for an independent. This is like 1990, 1991. Uh, and become the highest selling direct market book at the time. It was my fourth record breaking first issue in a relatively short period, beginning with Alpha Flight in the mid-80s, following with Man of Steel and Superman. Next Men continued to raise the bar. So John himself will tell you, um, again, that the, I, I read to you earlier in his own words in, in 1998 where he says, you know, we sold half a million copies. Here again in the forward to Next Men 2009, he tells you, I broke records. Alpha Flight broke records. Now, kudos to John Byrne. Again, that end of the year run, those, those later issues of Alpha Flight are, are, are perfect. But you have a guy under intense pressure. It's like today when we get a star in a show or a movie and, and we're just, our expectations exceed, you know, maybe what they were trying to do with the material. And what happens is there's a disconnect and the fans aren't as crazy about it. But regardless, it was a giant sales success and kudos to him for, for trying it out, for trying a different approach, for trying, you know, to, to, to have a team concept and only focus on individual members of the team and not bring them together uh, r routinely. Like, like kudos to him. Uh, but, but 
for Marvel, they got a giant hit book that they dined out on all stinking year. Now, in regards to the best-selling comics of 1983, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, the X-Men were officially, you know, Marvel's champions alongside Daredevil, as I already mentioned to you, topping 300,000 issues a month, 300,000 issues. There's nothing right now topping 300,000 issues a month in our modern day 2023 comic book, you know, distribution network. No, no comics are selling that. Uh, X-Men was the number one disputed leader, leader in Marvel sales and was the number one uh, for, for 17 years at one point. Is that crazy? From 1982 to 1998, X-Men would be the number one undisputed. 1982 to 1998. Daredevil was at the peak and uh, routinely outselling Spider-Man. You have to remember that. That's a big deal. The Marvel Universe as a whole was super strong. Um, Amazing Spider-Man continued to do very well. But here is this nice paragraph. Alpha Flight is the highest ranking comic book of 1983 on a single sales basis for one issue. Uh, the cumulative uh, figures for every issue, so across the 12 issues, um, the average for, for, for Alpha Flight in 1983 was 240,000 copies. He says it could even be a little higher. Avengers was still booming. New Mutants was another title. That launched. So, so think of it. The, the very first X Men spinoff book, official, taking place in the X Men universe, New, New Mutants, was averaging 215,000 copies, which again, Alpha Flight, which yes, spun off, you know, from X Men, but they were not, in fact, in, you know, mutants, was doing much, much better. The top books, the top selling books of 1983, according to this chart, uh, and the average number that they were selling, Uncanny X Men was averaging 336,000 copies. Uh, Daredevil was averaging 270,000 copies. Fantastic Four, John Byrne, again, number three, is is averaging 260,000 copies. Spider-Man is averaging, uh, based on this, 250,000. And then it says, and it has an asterisk, because it's saying Alpha Flight is is selling 240,000. But above here, he says he can make the argument that Alpha Flight was, in fact, selling much higher doing closer to 260,000 uh, on a on a routine routine basis but they 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 said with the numbers that were available to them they they pegged it at 240,000 so that's your top 5 avengers is number 6 new mutants is number 7 conan is number 8 red sonia is number 9 and incredible hulk is number 10 now one other thing to note in the comic book world of 1983 is star wars had fallen off and in this report they share Star Wars, which had previously ranked as Marvel's number one best-selling comic throughout the late 70s and early 80s, was showing signs of where after the third movie, Return of the Jedi, was released. Um, it was the first time since Star Wars debuted that it was not in the top 10 for Marvel. So first time since 1977, 1983, that, that Star Wars was not topping the charts, but it was understandable. Again, that was a big farewell in, in, spring, in spring of 1983. Saying goodbye to Return of the Jedi, saying goodbye to the cast. We didn't know if we were going to see them again. Again, you only you could only experience these these things in theaters. So if you wanted to spend time with Han and Luke and and and, and Leah and and Chewbacca, all of them, you had to keep repeat going to the theaters again and again and again. Which 
it's even more incredible. Now you go, well, Rob, why are the movies so, you know, doing so much more business now? A, ticket price, but B, way more cineplexes. This, the success of movies in 1983 created these, you know, designs to create more movie theaters and more movie theaters. Since when I went to see Return of the Jedi, when I went to see Trading Places and all these other films, there were two to three movie houses uh, in, in the greater Orange County area that I lived in. And some of them only played two movies. Some of them, like Star Wars, the movie, uh, the, the, the theater that I saw Star Wars at 1977 again and again and again and again. It was a two-theater house. That's it. It was cool. It had the popcorn stand. It had arcade games. But you walked in. You either went left or you went right to one of the different screening rooms. And they were both same size. So that summer, Star Wars started dominating. And it was really hard for any other movie to get on the marquee. Now, then there was others. Like I said, the Orange, uh, the Cynodome of Orange, which is where I saw uh, Empire and Return of the Jedi and Terminator 1 and Terminator 2. And, and Aliens 2, and The Goonies, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Indiana Jones, all the Indiana Jones movies. I saw Batman there. I saw everything up until about 1996, 97, and then they closed it. They closed, uh, they, they, it is now, when I drive by it and I see all the glorious, beautiful, high-rise, high-priced high um, condos. It's beautiful, but they, you know, they paved paradise and, uh, and put up a lot of condos is what they did. But, but at that time, just down the street adjacent, and they knew this was coming. It's the biggest 30, 30 screens. AMC 30 is at the block of Orange, and now they call it the Outlets of Orange. And then a new Century 25 stadium, you know, opened up. Cynodome had maybe 12 max theaters. Now within the same realm, two blocks down the street and four blocks up the street, we had 52 screens. There you go, right there, 52 screens. Then a mall went up in the late 80s. Main place, Santa Ana, it's still there. They have 10 screens. Okay, so so suddenly screens double, 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 triple, quadruple. And so now you're able to get as 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 again, the guys from Disney, the guys from Marvel are like, we're going to open in 5000 screens, you know, the most ever every week. They, they You should pay attention to those those screen counts. That means that that is how many opportunities that movie is getting to sell tickets. And when you go from two to 10 to 25 to 200 to 2000, obviously your your revenues are going to jump and and so that's 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 again why today's movies are, are just they're available everywhere but you had to go see them back in the day there was no streaming component there was no rental and and again some of these movies that played but you know none of this can compare to when we pivot to music now we've done comics we've celebrated beta ray bill thor we've celebrated x-men the paul smith era killer gave that book a shot in the arm and people who grew up with paul smith they immediately go paul smith oh my gosh he's my second favorite some people say he's my favorite but not me but they say oh i i, I rank it over burn um and a lot of people who experienced the later jim lee era they just didn't see paul smith coming i mean i paul smith is phenomenal those issues go get them go get them they're great and they're great the x-men hadn't become so grandiose that they had they needed nine part stories it's a two-part Morlock story. It's a two-part two part Japan Wolverine Viper Silver Samurai story. Okay, there's a single-issue fantastic Kitty Pride story. That these are much more compact, uh, much more compact storytelling. Um, even even Frank Miller's Electra arc is told in like multiple four-issue, multiple three-issue arcs. That then you realize I just read this incredible fifteen 
issue arc, but it wasn't billed as such. It's just all the subplots were, were woven together and stuff started to stick and emanate and, 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 oh, just fantastic time at comics. This is the apex, apex time for comic books. But we got to pivot to music because the music of 1983 is, is just like some of these other years with music is ridiculously um, engaging and exciting. And if you'd asked me from my memory, from my memory of high school, I would have told you it was the year that the, the British invasion broke through and just crushed it and, and, and took over. And we are going to spend a little time going through these incredible uh, music, music numbers. Now, <laughs> here's the thing. You are not even going to believe. Um, so a lot of times we do albums and you're going to see why we're going to give some of the singles their day here. Uh, cause albums is a, is a, is a funny story. And, and I'm going to get to that in a minute and, and I'm going to tell you why, but let's go through the top 100 hits according to billboard of 1983, the number one song of the year. You think it's Michael Jackson. It's not, you think in the thriller era, it's not, no, I can remember very clearly. And this is a haunting song with a kick-ass tune by an incredible band. And every time it comes on, I am frozen. I am back in 93. I remember rocking out to every breath you take by the police, a cool, creepy stalker song that we all loved because Sting was cool. Everything Sting did was cool. I'm not sure there was anyone cooler in the space and pop culture in this era. The police uh, kind of appealed to me and my junior high crowd. So, so, so we, we were, you know, all aboard the police and, and Sting and, uh, we just, we just could not get enough um, fr- from the do do do. I mean, from the do do <laughs> from from the do. <laughs> okay, uh, look, we we we, we I, I I am I am having technical difficulties um, summoning my my police lyrics and 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 and. Uh, but th- th- they were little punk, little ska, little pop, and uh, the early the late seventies early 80s people were eating up every everything that they uh that they produced and it was kind of working towards this giant you know synchronicity and you know from from sting andy summer Stuart copeland we we absolutely freaking love these guys but like in my memory you know uh you take away the the uh the live albums that they did. The thing is that the police had like just uh, not very many albums and they burned so bright. And, 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 you know, we as fans just ate up everything that they gave us. And, and imagine having an album called, you know, Zendata, Zenyata Mundata. And, and trust me, we ate that up. We ate that up. They're, they're, um, Outland d'Amour, Regatta de Blanc, Zenyata Mondata, Ghost in the Machine. These, you know, in my mind, they had like five studio albums. And then they were gone. They, they, they absolutely are the epitome of we left on top, we left on our own terms. And uh, don't stand so close to you. Uh, don't stand so close to me. Roxanne is the first time I had heard of the police playing. And Sting's voice and the very interesting arrangement of their songs. They were like nothing else going on in pop music. Again, you would go, they're a little punk, they're a little pop, they're a little ska, um, pinch of reggae, and, and uh, 
But this trio, just everything they did was compelling, was popular. They had a number of giant hits, but not until synchronicity did they just dominate. They just absolutely dominated. And with his cool hair, with his good looks, with his great cheekbones, I mean, they were all great looking guys, Andy and and Stuart. um, And it was the three of them going crazy. They were perfectly made for MTV because the one thing that's going to define 1983, even though MTV had been around just a little over, just around two years, again, you had these, there, there's, there's a thing and I love laughing about it because there was a phrase that was going around. You had a, you had a face made for radio. And if you look at the lead singers of Foreigner and Sticks and Journey and, um, you know, Boston and so many of the bands that were defining the end of the seventies, they were nothing compared to these pretty boys that were coming from, uh, from, 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 from over the seas, from across the pond, the English pretty boys, uh, first and foremost, were putting a lot of pressure on the American youngsters. Because the girls at high school, and high school is everything in this era. High school was, oh my gosh, high school in the 80s was, I mean, that's why there's so many high school movies in the 80s. It was really, it defined so much of, of, of your life and, and your, you know, your, your ups and downs. And men, could, could high school make you down? And man, could high school, you know, great high school experience take you high? But these girls, all the beautiful girls that you had crushes on, the Dianes, the Cherise, the Jennies. You know, the Melanie's, the Lisa's, uh, the Paula's, all of these girls had t-shirts of the police of, of those incredible cheekbones of Sting or of Duran Duran, Simon Le Bon, or they had Spandau Ballet, or they had, you know, the guys from AHA that these, uh, English pretty boys just dominated and, and the cameras loved them and the lighting loved them. And the directors made sure that you saw those chiseled chins and those cheekbones and those hair. And trust me. They, it was like the most beautiful people in the world were now singing you songs. And the kind of what we call the Hessian, the rockers, uh, the guys, the more burly guys were kind of played off because they didn't have, again, a face. <laughs> Sorry, a face made for radio is one of my favorite um, <laughs> terms. You may say, Rob, you have a voice made for a podcast. I'm not going to argue with you. I will take that. Uh, I will take that insult and double down on it because yes, I am not hosting American Idol. I am not your Ryan Seacrest. Okay. But I have my little podcast and you've come, uh, uh, you, you've become accustomed to my, my crusty voice. But again, a face, uh, m- made for radio was a thing. And again, these, these pretty boys, uh, dominated and, and I'm, I'm not sure that there was anybody prettier at the time. And Sting, and also incredibly talented. And you know, when the, when the police broke up, it was such a bummer. But obviously, Sting was still uh, committed, just like Don Henley coming out of the Eagles to giving you uh, to giving you so much of his incredible visionary uh, vocals and, and 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 you know, musical talent. And so, every breath you take is the number one selling uh, single. I saw the police when they reunited. It's either two thousand seven, two thousand eight. It was at the Anaheim Pond where the the, the, the Ducks play. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. We, you know, they correctly, they hadn't been together in, what was it like at the time? Over 20, over, over 20 years, over two decades since they'd played together, since they broke up. And they played, you know, do, 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 da, 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 da. They played, you know, all of their hits, everything off Ghost in the Machine, Zenyata, Mondata. And, and, and they were dancing around with synchronicity and some of these other, cause that synchronicity album is so much more than obviously every breath you take. It's brilliant. But I also remember, cause I couldn't drive begging my dad on that Friday when it was out 
to drive me to the music land. I had saved up my money. I, it may have come out on a Tuesday or Wednesday, but it was that Friday, that first week to take me. And it was on the same property that the block of orange is. There was a music land there. I ran inside. I bought uh, Synchronicity and all I did was listen to it all weekend long. It was so amazing. Um, but when they, the, they came back out here and we saw them, our friends tried to leave. I made the mistake of, uh, of riding with them. They, 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 it was our tickets, but they drove. And they're like, oh, we're out of here. And I'm like, they haven't encored every breath you've taken. If you think that I am going to sit here and listen to this concert in its entirety and leave one epic song short, you're crazy. And you know, my wife, Joy, is feeling the pressure. Oh, they want to leave. Well, I don't care. I don't care. You, you, you're going to, there's no Ubers. There's no taxis. I was like, you're going to leave. And then you're going to come back and get me because I'm not leaving because I'm staying right here. I am staying right here in these great seats. And I'm going to hear them say, every breath you take, I am not walking away. And we didn't. But can you believe that? Who goes? And sees the police reunite after 25 years and goes, ah, I'm not going to stay for the encore. I'm not going to stay for everybody you take. Whack. Did it affect our friendship? Yes. Did we hang out with them ever again? No. Let me, let me tell you, there were other underlying issues, but that sealed the deal. Okay. Michael Jackson, Billie Jean, number two single of 1983. Flashdance, What a Feeling, Irene Cara, the number three song. The number four song was Men at Work, Down Under, and boy, did they go on an absolute freaking hair uh beat it michael jackson number five total eclipse of the heart by bonnie tyler i don't want to sing that but i want to sing that to you right now i want to <laughs> i'm not gonna don't i won't man eater by hall and oates great earworm what an earworm number seven baby come to me a beautiful uh ballad by patty austin and james ingram maniac great song again flash dance michael Sambalo. And sweet dreams are made of this by Eurythmics. But here's the deal. We can't stop because that British Invasion was here. Do You Really Want to Hurt Me by Culture Club had a hard time breaking into the top 11 because of these in incredible hits above it. Come on, Eileen. Dexie's Midnight Runners was number 13. Okay. Uh, you had um, Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran. How in the hell is Hungry Like the Wolf not higher, right? Because it was played nonstop in 1983. Um, David Bowie, Let's Dance. Thomas Dolby, she blinded me with science. You had Prince, Little Red Corvette. He was climbing, he was coming on. Oh boy, that Purple Rain album is coming. You had After the Fire with De Kamasa. You had The Human League, okay? You had More Culture Club, Time, Clock of the Heart at number 34. You had Men Without Hats, Safety Dance. Okay, Men Without Hats, Safety Dance. You had, um, you know, Stray Cats with the Stray Cats strut. I mean, Naked Eyes, always something there to remind me. Number 46, just flat out fantastic. Kaja Gugu haunted us with your Too Shy, Too Shy Adamant, Goody Two Shoes, The Clash, Rock the Casbah, Madness, Our House. These, these songs played nonstop. I would have told you each one of those songs by that incredible English invasion that really populates, you know, from, from 11 to 50. You just saw how many incredible albums the english invasion and the rolling stones and all of the music magazines would re report new york times LA times the english invasion these new faces duran duran who clearly you know they had had some great hits prior to the rio album with girls on film and those videos were playing but again you know they were one year away from giant breakthrough a giant with with material i didn't love as much i think rio is is duran duran's absolute best album but everything that followed started selling more because again that hype they were on the t-shirts i mean you walked onto campus at my high school and every one of these british acts is on those t-shirts and those girls would tie the t-shirts above their navel 
you know, they would um, twist the, the arm. I mean, come on. And they, and, and every girl started procuring the, the flock of seagulls haircut or the Pat Benatar. Look, look, fast times at Ridgemont high. There's a, there's a seek, seek, uh, there's a sequence right in the beginning with Phoebe Cates when she's telling Jennifer Jason Lee, Oh, she's procured the Pat Benatar, Pat Benatar look. And so is she. And so is she. And it's hilarious because that is how it was happening. You would see a look on a video and boom, everyone was, it was, it was the fastest. Like I couldn't believe sometimes how fast. So you saw the flock of seagulls and you ran to the hairdresser and now your hair is flock of seagulls on a Saturday when it was not on a Friday. But, uh, these bands, this, these hits, but here's the deal. Every breath you take again, just the entire summer of 1983. Oh my gosh. And you know, obviously sting would go on. It's, it's a crazy role. Uh, but he would start going on and being in movies, Dune being, you know, one of his earliest. And then uh, I'm pretty sure he's in a, he's in a Frankenstein movie. Don't quote me on that. Um, anyway, uh, that's your top, top hits and they're big hits. Michael Jackson, you know, is on these charts. Uh, he's in the top 10 twice. You would think that he was on the entire top 10, but the thing about Michael Jackson, I'm going to tell you the thriller, um, the thriller video comes out and I'm going to tell you, we're, we're deep into CIF playoffs. Our basketball team is really good and we're going to the conference finals. And, uh, it was a Friday night MTV. They kept teasing you. They kept teasing you. The thriller video is coming. The thriller video is coming. And, and it, it's debuting on Friday night. It's a, it's like a, like a mini movie. They said a mini movie. And, and we all, uh, gathered literally before the basketball game to watch, uh, to watch it premiere and uh like when i say we all i'm talking 60 people at big 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 doug's house and uh and and we are going to watch this key we're going to go watch this key rivalry game uh that that, that, that's going to go down it was one of our big rivals we were positioned really well um we went to the we went to the conference finals but that night it was a giant uh giant game with seeding implications and it was a giant crosstown rival but on december 2nd 1983 the thriller video directed by john landis uh who had directed you know american werewolf in london blues brothers was directing trading places that summer had directed trading places and and remember that they then started playing the, the the making of video and 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 how michael was transformed into a werewolf because in thriller that you know that killer track was now like g- giving giving the big budget for the time half a million dollars for that video half a million dollars to make that video and it debuts and we all watched it on MTV at my buddy's house and then all got in our cars and the funny thing is I remember that night going to this to to the to to the gym where we're about to play and all these cars pulling in where everyone's late everyone's late because everyone stayed home at school to watch the freaking thriller video. Michael Jackson, turn it a werewolf, dance with zombies. You know, a precursor to all things zombies that was coming. Hello, Walking Dead. Um, I mean, holy crap. George Romero, I, I know you came first, but holy shit, your zombies were never as popular as they were when they were dancing alongside um, Michael Jackson. That thriller video was incredible. We We freaked out. I mean, a giant school spirit and we the basketball team was beloved we loved our basketball team we had some sick talented players we were doing well it's a giant cross down cross 
cross-school rival. And did we all get there late because we had to see Michael Jackson do the Thriller video on MTV Live? Yes, we did. And did MTV play that all weekend? Yes, because they knew, come on, we've got the eyeballs uh, uh, of an entire generation. And they did. And I can't, just cannot underscore to you. Um, whatever, if you're young and you're addicted to TikTok, that was our MTV. It was on 24-7. We consumed it. We never, ever looked away from it. It had all the cool fashion, the music, these great looking people. I mean, it was the beautiful, um, the beautiful people network. I mean, literally great hair, great fashion, great jackets. Did we, you know, some of those jackets, some of those fashions, we immediately adopted ourselves and, uh, incredibly influential. I cannot even begin to tell you how MTV changed everything, but boy, did you, did it help if you were pretty and you had a good voice, whether you were a man or, or, or a woman at the time. So, uh, the music at the time, I told you the singles, but here's the killer. Here is the killer part. So there are six albums, only six albums were number one in 1983. Can you believe that? Is that, is that insane? Only six albums are number one in 1983. That is how ridiculously um, competitive the music scene was in 1983. There were six number one albums on the chart. They all dominated, okay? So, and, and, and you're like, life, that, that's ridiculous. No, we're going to go through it right now. January 1st, January 8th, January 15th, the week ending January 22nd, January 29th, February 5th, February 12th, February 19th, is men at work. Business as usual. Who can it be now? I come from the land down under. These guys, absolutely absolutely dominated the music scene to kick off uh to kick off the uh the the year that was 1983 Colin Hay I just saw him last year in concert I literally just saw him and he sang all of these fantastic songs and I was back in my sophomore in my junior year business as usual men at works debut album for us especially across the states was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight weeks at number one. And then look out. Goodbye, Australian sensations. Goodbye, men at work. For the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 weeks straight from February 26 to June 18th, like an entire season. Michael Jackson's thriller was the number one album. So we are now in the middle of summer and there have been two albums that have traded the number one spot. 1983, Men at Work, seven. Then what, what did I just say? Was that like 16? <laughs> I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to count it again. Um, but holy crap, did that just from February 26th to June 18th. Seventeen weeks of Michael Jackson. Number one, top in the charts. What stopped it? Because something got in, in, in the middle there, right there. Well, it was a giant movie, Runaway Success soundtrack. Uh, Flashdance wedged in there for two weeks. June 25th, July 2nd, riding all the heat from Flashdance, the movie. Um, that soundtrack caught fire. That movie was hot. That movie was really a big deal. Um, then, then who's back July 9th and 16th? It is Michael Jackson. He's coming back to get a few more weeks. To add week 18, 19, whatever, 20, whatever, how many incredible weeks he's, he's on. So, so now, 
Now we're we're in we're in July 16th, and only three albums have charted number one in 1983. That's how dominant Michael Jackson was. That's how dominant his music was. How dominant his presence and and the influence of you know Men at Work and their incredibly explosive you know presence on the music scene. So you take Flashdance out of that two two week cycle, and you have. Just Men at Work and Thriller dominating all the way through the middle of the year. It is July 16th. We are over the hump of the year. But then, and, I, and I'm telling you, I remember very clearly that summer evening, long days, sun hanging high in the air that evening. My dad, I couldn't drive. Can you take me to Musicland? I've got to get the new Police album. The Police, like me and my buddies, we'd get together at their houses, put on the LP, put on the, the cassette, and just all, you guys did this. My one friend, he was very bougie, very rich. He had a, a, a swank, gigantic waterbed. He'd lay on that. He had a couple beanbags. We, me and my other buddies, we'd kind of sit on the beanbags on the floor and we would just blast. You guys know what this is. The ceiling fan is going and my friend Ken is just sitting on his sweet waterbed and the rest of us are on our beanbags and the music is just playing, playing, boom, boom, boom. Synchronicity, you know. Every breath you take, that entire album, the two synchronicity tracks, all of it, um, wrapped around your finger. I mean, just incredible. It charts the synchronicity police album, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven weeks at number one, carries us right into the start of the school year. It goes from basically right after 4th of July through Labor Day, the police rock the charts. Sting is your new number one phenomenon and everyone is enamored with synchronicity and we cannot and those guys are they're having fun they are i don't know that they knew that this was the last album because i remember Stuart copeland and andy summers and and sting crashing all the different mtv junkets and promoting it and doing doing interviews on all the different news media and they were excited they were excited to give you this new music which was incredibly um very distinctive their style, their sound, nobody else sounds like the police. They were such a giant, massive, awesome, amazing band, and then they just stopped. They just walked away. But Synchronicity, you know, just dominates for seven weeks. What's back in September uh, 10th is Thriller. Michael Jackson makes one more oomph. He, he makes a, like another oomph. And guess what? Synchronicity says, Synchronicity says, hold my beer. We're coming back. The police then, only one week, Michael Jackson wedges in in September 10th, and then all fall through Thanksgiving, Synchronicity is the number one album again. September 17th, 24th, October 1st, October 8th, October 15th, October 22nd, October 29th, November 5th, November 12th, November 19th. You want to know what breaks in? <laughs> in the uh, right around Thanksgiving, Quiet Riot, Come On, Feel the Noise, Metal Health breaks in and is the number one metal gets its rallying point metal rallies okay and uh they, they they get there and then lionel richie releases his can't slow down album and he ends the year december 3rd december 10th december 7th 17th uh lionel richie's number one but back to advantage michael jackson the thriller video is released and he ends up dominating the last two years of 1983 you guys six albums six albums Six artists, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, Quiet Riot, The Police, The Soundtrack to Flashdance, and Men at Work are your six acts that dominated the entirety of the charts of 1983. That is just sick and crazy. 
And when you get that Michael Jackson, it looks like uh, 22 weeks of 1983, at least 22 weeks, he dominated the charts. Police, incredibly, have that run where he just comes in for one week, right? Um, but in the middle of it, they get their 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Times are different. We don't, have, we don't experience this. I talk about movies and how they, how, 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 how they ran and ran. Again, you didn't have some device that you could just download and listen to and jam out to that, that, that you know, beams the music directly into your ears. You had to go buy these albums. You had to go buy these cassettes. And you had to play them on players, physical players. You want to know why all these other appliance stores broke down? Because what are the number one appliances that they were selling you? Or killer stereo systems. Think of Don Cheadle in, in Boogie Nights when he's like, oh man, I can hook you up with the sweet stereo system. I can, I can, I can, you know, can you feel that bass? Can you feel that bass? Like, like those, those stores are gone because we don't need those anymore. Our, our stereo systems are these funky little ear pods that we dangle out like water drops of our ear and, and, uh, and, and, and run around and jog and, 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 or we sync up in our car. iTunes changed everything. All right. Thank you, Napster, for crushing it and, and, and kind of leading the way. But anyway, that just took you back. You just felt like 1999 right there. I said Napster. And you had your hat on backwards and you had your goatee and one of your ears was pierced and you were listening to Limp Biscuit. You know it and I know it. And we're not doing that year yet. But 1983's music, all that British music, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners. I, I mean, I can jam to, you know, come on Eileen every time. If you've ever watched me on my Whatnot show on my live feed, I sometimes just hit the button and I blast come on Eileen. I can't stop with come on Eileen. I love it. Um, all that British music, all their great hair and floppy bangs and their big oversized suits and their cool thin ties. Um, and, and, their, and, their, and their very unique British way of dancing. And their overcoats. Don't forget Madness and Our House. And their cool, thick overcoats sitting, you know, uh, uh, you got Dexy Midnight Runners in their, in their overalls, which they were rad. They were like a freaky looking bunch of, bunch of people singing their song and doing their weird dance steps on the sidewalk. And then you got, you got Madness with their, with their sweet overcoats and their cool hats singing about their house, our house. Uh, the music was rad. This is great music. These are great times incredible really to have six artists six are and, and one is a soundtrack one in in that two weeks there's a soundtrack to a incredibly popular movie flash dance was a giant movie again in the in the in the in the movie charts you know we shared with you that that flash dance was in the top 10 that year flash dance was in fact one of the absolute biggest movies uh of 1983 so it made sense that you know you would you would get the soundtrack uh, to to a movie so that is dominated by music and dancing. Flashdance was number three, the number three film of 1983. You know, finally gets an album in there. But you take that out, that's five acts. That's Men at Work, Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, The Police, um, Quiet Riot. <laughs> Quiet Riot's like we're gonna sneak in there. The Quiet Riot's like, yeah, we did it. We landed. We wedged ourselves for one week. Come on. Feel the noise, okay? And and that 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 was a that was a jamming that was a jamming tune that again, um, you know, uh, and and, and by that time we were re- we were ready for some non pretty English boys uh, to 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 scream at us and and uh, great drum beats, great track. Uh, I mean that 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 was that that was a fun time. So, so they definitely 
they definitely earned um <laughs> they <laughs> they they uh they definitely earned their, their 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 spot that one week um and uh and, and broke through uh i mean th- th- these are just incredible chart performances by these acts and it really underscores how big michael jackson was like i said i mean we sat around waiting like when are they gonna play the video when are they play thriller and do not underestimate at all you know michael jackson understood how to make music videos beat it is like a little mini film in and of itself with the whole gang stuff billy jean is mesmerizing to this day i can turn it on and just watch it with those glow glowing panels on the street and his dancing he was a phenomenon and and you know in 1979 do i do i favor off the wall i do still um but uh thriller is it's undeniable it was just a comet it was it was it was a giant rocket and it just took off and 22 weeks give or take crazy so the last thing that we have to cover because we've covered music we've covered comics what a year we've covered the superstar careers that that burst out of the movies of 1983 i mean again even if you go matthew broderick matthew broderick war games never heard of him before it's like like number two movie on his imdb he he then gets 10 years where he basically gets, gets to do whatever he, whatever he wants. He headlines all sorts of movies. He's in demand that, you know, his agents are booking him right and left. Like I said in the last episode, he's getting offers. He's getting scripts that come with cash offers. This is how much we will pay you. You know, he burst onto the scene. Just dominated. Michael Keaton. I mean, Tom Cruise, Eddie Murphy. Th- th- this, this was just an exceptional period. So, uh, the movies and the music and the comics, all that we have left is, 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 to, is to do the television of 1983. The top 10 television shows of 1983. This is an interesting thing. I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to give you a quick glance here. The biggest black actor in Hollywood was on an ensemble show called The A-Team. And the reason I'm telling you that is, you got to understand, at this point in time, in 1983, given Eddie Murphy's success, he goes from funny guy on Saturday Night Live to giant blockbuster movie star for the next decade. And the Cosby show doesn't come on for another year. The Cosby show, Bill Cosby, uh, good God, the, the train wreck that that all became. But at the time, Bill Cosby dominated the charts. He, his show landed at the top and stayed there. And of course, that's why so many of you know him beyond his Jello Pudding Pops commercials and his comedic stand-up acts that we grew up with him or, or, or supporting tv and uh and and movie roles the cosby show was a massive force but it wouldn't come around for another year um eddie murphy became the champion uh for 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 the black talent movement actors because if you looked on television you weren't getting this representation so the number one show is dallas and i'm not i'm not i'm just telling you this, there's a reason everyone rallied. You know, Richard Pryor again had had, had gone into kind of uh, a, a drug, very deep, disturbing kind of drug spiral. He burned himself freebasing cocaine. That's why he couldn't even be in. He was originally supposed to be in trading places. We covered that in the first part of 1983. But I mean, Eddie Murphy is is a phenomenon. Now you've got obviously you're like, but Michael Jackson is dominating the charts. Yes, and and in and in sports, Magic Johnson is blowing up. Uh, alongside his rival Larry Bird, and and what's gonna what's gonna come is this dominance, where uh, 
the, 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 the black actors and musicians of the day define what's coming forward. Um, what, what's coming after with Eddie Murphy, with Arsenio Hall, with Magic Johnson, with Prince, with, with, um, with, with Michael Jackson. I mean, obviously, and, and, and the apex predator of all time in terms of talented athletes, Michael Jordan. But it is the age of the white soap opera in 1983. Dallas is number one with the Ewing family and all their problems. And J.R. Ewing, following who shot J.R., it shot up to the top and it never looked back. Not for a very many years, very many episodes, very many seasons. 60 Minutes, still giving us the news. Dynasty is number three, another um, white person, rich, rich white people soap opera. The A-Team, B.A. Baracus. You got fresh off the heat of Rocky Three. Mr. T leads uh, the popularity. He is the, he's like the thing or the colossus or the strong man of, of Marvel. He is at the centerpiece of every TV guide ad, every piece of promotion that A-Team has. The A-Team dominate. These are like, you know, millions and millions of people are watching these shows, much less than the 3 million people that people celebrate are watching the streaming. This is the age of like 30 million, 40 million eyeballs. The A-Team is number four. B.A. Baracus is the breakout fan favorite. Simon and Simon, two white detectives, Magnum P.I. <laughs> yes, I'm white. I am aware. I am a white person telling you this and, and mocking the lack of diversity and why you know, Eddie Murphy breaking through was such an incredible bar to clear. And then he doesn't look back. And the people who buy the majority of his tickets, um, white America, people who are watching these white soap operas, <laughs> um, uh, Falcon crest number seven. So already in the top 10 and, and we're going to stretch this to 11 to make a point, but Dallas and dynasty are your one and three, you know, you got your, your, your detectives, Simon and Simon Magnum PI are your five and six. Falcon Crest, never saw it, never saw a single frame, but knew it existed, knew it was out there, knew it was another rich person's uh, soap opera. Is number seven, Kate and Allie. Uh, is number eight, situational comedy. Hotel, James Brolin, father of the incredible Josh Brolin, incredible actor in his own right. Hotel uh, is, is the second uh, show to, to chart for ABC. And an otherwise really CBS dominated because CBS has the number one and the number two slots. Then it has five, six, seven, and eight. Okay, ABC is Dynasty. ABC is number nine hotel. Cagney and Lacey, another CBS, but also tied with Cagney and Lacey, giving us the number 11 is Knott's Landing. I told you guys a couple weeks back that football hadn't become football that we knew it yet. And I watched football. I would go to the buffets, the all-you-can-eat. Shakey's or whatever bar that had pizza and wings. And yeah, they did that back then. And we would watch Monday Night Football. But Monday Night Football was the number 12 show on television. It was, I mean, it was getting, you know, beat by all these rich white people, soap opera dramatics. There's four of them, Knott's Landing, Falcon Crest, Dynasty in Dallas. And then your rich hotel show uh, called Hotel is up there too. I'm just, just again, for a point of reference, when Bill Cosby comes on the scene the next year, that then gives a spinoff a couple years later to A Different World, which I loved. I loved that show, which took place in an all-black uh, college. And then, you know, between Arsenio Hall and everything that followed and all of the Martin Short sto- uh, shows and Jamie Foxx and In Living Color, the balance happens. But this is, <laughs> this is whitey, this is whitey, Television, 1983, Dallas, 60 Minutes, Dynasty, A-Team, Simon and Simon make up your top five 
Magnum PI number six, Falcon Crest number seven, Kate and Alley number eight, Hotel number nine, 10 Cagney and Lacey. Another reason people were going to the movies because TV was so boring. Oh my gosh. Is this, is this the most boring list of television? I can't think of a time where television was more yawn-inducing. And all of these rich soap operas were these beautiful women in, in the super tightest-fitting gowns, you know, coming up and down the stairs, coming up and down the stairs. Hey, Linda Evans, we need that. One more cut. One more try. Come up and down the stairs. We, you're not glittering enough. Um, Joan London, you come down. You're not glittering enough. Gl- glittery enough. Morgan Fairchild, you know, um, um, we need you in a tighter dress. And it needs to be more sparkly because <laughs> we, <laughs> and, and, and this, this mansion isn't big enough. We don't have a big enough mansion for, for the, the Carringtons or is that the name of the family and dynasty? I'm just spitballing or the Ewings. Um, so yeah, white soap opera was all the rage. Now, I'm not sure it gets bigger than 1983. So not a lot to get excited about in television, but oh, what a banger year music was movies and comic books 1983 rocked from top to bottom this this detour you wondered you wonder why the movies were doing so well because we're like i don't want to watch that that tv that blows that's that's boring i'm gonna go i'm gonna go watch trading places i'm gonna go see uh you know uh risky business again i'm I'm gonna go watch return of the jedi for the fifth time in one single weekend because uh because these movies i'm gonna watch flash dance in april because this television these television shows just blow they're boring it's all the same people drinking cocktails and counting their money and talking about their betrayal and their investments and the oil, the oil money. Okay. Not, it really wasn't my thing. Maybe it was yours. Maybe it was your parents or God forbid it was your, <laughs> it was your grandparents. It was your grandparents. Hey, good year. 83 is a good year. Thank you for sharing it with me uh, and all of its highs and lows. We have gone a bit long today. Let me, let me transition out of here as fast as I can. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. I am on Facebook. I have a group called Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. It's on Facebook. It's a group. Check it out. Click over a lot of the conversations that we have here. Continue there. Art contest. Come see us. Facebook. uh, My my Facebook group is Rob, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. My Twitter is at Robert Liefeld, the full name. Uh, and Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. So those are three main that, that covers Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, but not necessarily in that order. There's an app called whatnot. I'm at it regularly. Follow me, Rob Liefeld on whatnot. They, 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 everything you want, they have, they have, they have bougie watches, apparel. They're, 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 they're selling everything. And why shouldn't they, they can reach you and their system is amazing. I'm in the, basically the comic books, collectibles, Funkos, toys section. I go live. I go live stream. I talk to you right into the camera. It's kind of an extension of the show, except I'm grumpier at night. So if you go away, where's Upbeat Podcast Rob? He's gone. Upbeat Podcast Rob started talking to you into this microphone at 4.30 this morning. (laughs) This is a 4.30 a.m. This is top of the morning, top of the morning. My coffee, the birds are chirping. I heard the, 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 the sprinklers cover my entire property. Okay. Uh, all while I was doing this very upbeat podcast. But at night, whatnot, I'm grumpy. I'm sorry. It's the end of my day. I've been up too early. So, but I'm, I'm doing my best. Have I fallen asleep on air yet? No, but it's coming. I'm sure it is. Whatnot, follow me, Rob Liefeld. Exclusive comics, uh, signed Funkos, toys, original art. You can check me out over there on whatnot. I am having a CGC private in-house signing. I want you to send me your books. Please send me your books. 
Uh, go to the CGC website, get the menu, look at Rob Liefeld, private in-house signing, and let's get going. You, you, Deadpool 3 is signing. You're going, why didn't I get those books in? I want those at the, at the, at the front. No, every book. I don't care if it comes in front, middle, back. I'm going to take my time. At, at whatnot, we have a CGC component. It's not compared to this, but I want to tell you guys, we get people high grades all the time. We know how to treat books, and we're going to treat your books the very, very best. Uh, uh, when, I, when I get to CGC, I don't know what you're going to send me. New Mutants 98, 87, Youngblood 1, my Captain Americas, my Snake Eyes, my Avengers, Major X, Deadpool, whatever it is. Get it ready. Send it into CGC. Um, look at their different pricing menu. There's some different op- upgrades still available. There is a, there's a dedicated label. I want you to see that dedicated label. This is going to be very, very limited time. So uh, my, 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 uh, my CGC private in-house signing goes... Uh, they're accepting books all throughout July. So you still have way, way plenty of time. Plenty of time. I'm going to be there in August signing your books and getting that turnaround going. And I can't wait to spend time and sign those books, send those into CGC. I have a comic book coming out in just a couple of weeks. It's called Deadpool Batter Blood. It is the sequel to my best-selling number one chart-topping Deadpool Bad Blood. And it rocks. I am so excited. Cable, Wolverine, Thumper, Venom Pool. Venom, all new characters, Shatterstorm, who is Arcata, what is Killville, and dare I say even the name Starpool, I just said Starpool, okay, you're going to have to check all this out, do not get left behind, your retailer is going to have them, but they're going to sell out fast, because they didn't order enough, because they never order enough, because you always want more than they have to give you, so get to your store, talk to your retailer, June 7th is Deadpool Batter Blood, it's coming out, I want to get it into your hands. I am having a personal signing, my only signing of the year. I haven't done a personal appearance in a year. There's nothing else on tap for 2023. I am appearing at Comics, Tunes, and Toys in Tustin, California. Look up Comics, Tunes, and Toys. Sometimes they're called Comics TNT, but Comics, Tunes, and Toys is the listing in Tustin, California. I'm going to be there June 10th, signing one copy free for everybody. You buy Deadpool Batter Blood number one from them, and I am going to sign it for you for free. Any, anything else you want to bring, you're welcome to bring. We have a pricing menu. Again, this is my only personal appearance, my only signing of the year. I hope to see you there. We always stay as long as the customers are there. We stay the entire time. We look forward to seeing you. I look forward to seeing you. Everybody, thank you so much for hanging with me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for supporting it. Thank you for listening to it, whether it's on Spotify, Apple, uh, Podbean, Stitcher, whatever, um, Google, wherever you listen to this, thank you for engaging with us on this podcast. I am thinking of you. I want you to do well at all times. I am thinking of your spiritual, your emotional, your physical, and your mental well-being, your health. Take a break. Take some time. Spend it with loved ones, with family members. If they're too busy, curl up with a comic book, a graphic novel, watch a streaming show, catch a cool movie, just unwind, unlock let the art in, let, let, let music and movies and comics and pictures and words and novels, let them reignite you. That is my hope for you, that you find a balance. You need a balance. I need a balance and I'm rooting for you. I am cheering you on. Thank you. Please come back again. See me. I will be here. I will be here. I'll be waiting for our next encounter. We will most definitely, absolutely, and inevitably, it's fate. It's fate. We will talk again real soon.